Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for part two of a two-part conversation with Enneagram expert Beatrice Chestnut and host Michael Lerner. Beatrice Chestnut, welcome back for our second session. Thank you. We loved the morning with you. Uh, we had a request, understandable, to uh, cover the 27 personality subtypes. And I think what we will say to you is that we hope you will purchase and read the book. <laughs> um, and if you want a short guide, this, uh, which is also available on Beatrice Chestnut's website, the Enneagram Systems 27 Personality Subtypes is a short guide. But it's, it's, we can't do that and do the other things we want to do this afternoon. So um, that's available in book form. And what we want to do is get some things that aren't available in book form. So just to start with a brief recapitulation, uh, a very ancient system. You made the important point that some people deny that the Enneagram is ancient. And they can make a case in a way, you know, that, but we're not really saying that the Enneagram, we're certainly not saying that the Enneagram as a known personality system has been the same through all these years. We're saying that there are certain very profound um, relationships between the Enneagram of personality and um, these ancient systems that have come down in different ways. So I just think it's useful to clarify that we're not claiming a single thing. Is that correct? Yeah, and I, I think it's, I think people that believe that the Enneagram has ancient roots don't necessarily claim that they know exactly what that's looked like right. um, for, for, you know, in particular periods of time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly, the evidence provided by Homer's Odyssey to me says something. I mean, it's 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 the, even the personality, the archetypes are there, right? In the same order as the Enneagram. Right. So that's profound. And and as we've said, the seven deadly sins of Christianity plus two, and in other words, there are all these things. But I, I just think there ought to be a middle ground between the theory that it doesn't have ancient origins and the evidence that it does. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe part of that middle ground is to say, we're not, we're not making a claim that actually, as you say, people who study this wouldn't actually make, that it's always been exactly the same. But rather that, I mean, I find the Homer's Odyssey and Dante's Inferno and Seven Sins and the Kabbalah and, Sufi uses and so on, that's more than sufficient to me. Um, and yeah, for me too. In fact, there's a, um, there's a line in um, the Bible somewhere, I think in the New Testament, you may actually know it, uh, a friend named Jan Weissick pointed it out to me, that has all nine of the attributes in mm. one of the lines, as mm. opposed to just the seven. Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. so I think where it would be special to focus, um, at least for the first part of the afternoon, is 
how you came to be who you are, kind of a spiritual biography as we speak of it. Mm. And you gave me permission to ask you these questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't know what all the questions are, but yes. <laughs> so where did you grow up? Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Palo Alto, California. What kind of family did you grow up in? Um, my mom's Portuguese, my dad's Irish. Mm -hmm. um, my father came from Chicago and he was, he has a PhD in math. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom has a master's in music. So my mom was an opera singer. My father was, uh, after getting a PhD in math at Stanford, he worked in the aerospace industry mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. um, so engineering applications um, and um, yeah, family of four uh, living in Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Catholic. Mm -hmm. uh, practicing Catholic? Practicing Catholic on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, my parents both went to Catholic school their whole lives. Mm -hmm. My father went to Notre Dame in Indiana. My mom went to Notre Dame in Belmont. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, very Catholic practicing um, and my aunt, my, as I said, my great aunt is a Catholic nun. Mm -hmm. So deep roots in that, that tradition. So what was your experience of the Christ as a child? So the Catholicism I grew up with, I found empty of spirituality. Um, so I was sort of made to go to church every Sunday. Um, and didn't have a choice. Um, got had you know got confirmed, got second communion. But to me, the the priests I grew up with did not convey spirituality or spiritual lessons. It felt more like dogma or more, more moral lessons. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, by high school age, <clears throat> I when I was a senior in high school, I told my dad I wouldn't be going to church anymore. Uh, and he said, well, then you can't call yourself a Catholic. He's a one. <laughs> he said, and you can't call yourself a Catholic. I said, it's a deal. <laughs> so I stopped going to church. And while I think there was a way that I had some, pr some, some pride, uh, cultural pride of being a Catholic, um, and certainly uh, had a great family, Portuguese Catholic family, great Irish Catholic family, and... Um, and, and I think I got a sense of faith from my upbringing, um, of believing in something. I definitely believed in a higher power, uh, but what that meant and what that would do for me in terms of a spiritual life, I felt like I didn't really get that the priest, my, my father even said the cup called a couple of the priests at, at our church irreverent. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was a way that in his one-ish way, I think he even sort of saw that they weren't very, they weren't imparting a lot of spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, it was interesting when I was a little bit older, I want to say maybe college or after that, there was a priest that came to town, um, an Irish priest who had worked in Africa for many time and had a PhD in transpersonal psychology who was completely different. His name was Father Sean O'Leary. And he, that was, he was who a priest was supposed to be. And I think if I had been raised with someone like him, it would have been completely different. Mm -hmm. he, he talked a lot about all the spiritual traditions and he talked with great expertise about different religions. Um, and 
the things, there are things he said that I think of every day. Um, so that was different. So when he came along, I thought, okay, that's what it was supposed to be. But because I hadn't been raised with that, there was a little bit of a feeling of emptiness um, that I got from my Catholic upbringing. So some of my friends who were raised Catholic that way and, and found it empty or burned out on it or even felt betrayed by it, mm can never reconnect with it, with, uh, with the Christ. Others go through that emptiness and ultimately experience that channel reopening for them. Yeah. What happened for you in that regard? So um, the Enneagram in a way brought me back to spirituality. Okay. And so I think that's part of why it was such a rich experience for me um, learning the Enneagram is it wasn't just about career or psychology or even understanding myself. Um, right after I learned the Enneagram, I moved to Chicago, <clears throat> where I went to graduate school. And I had a cousin living there, my father's family is from Chicago, who was really into a lot of esoteric spiritual traditions. And when I got there, he said, oh, you know the Enneagram, well, you've got to read this. Mm -hmm. And he handed me a copy of Gurdjieff's In Search of the Miraculous. Mm -hmm. And that changed my life. Um, when I read that, one of the, a lot of the things Gurdjieff says is that um, there's not always a lot of connection between existing organized religions and where they originally came from. Mm -hmm. um, and that um, uh, he talked a lot about how the Bible was written for people who were part of secret spiritual schools, who it was almost written in code, mm -hmm. uh, but it's been taken too literally. And he also talked about how there are different interpretations of things. And anyway, he got me, it's sort of like I reconnected to spirituality through the Enneagram, um, read more about the perennial philosophy, um, because I never had a sense of like, there's one path that's right and the others are wrong. Um, and so learning that, you know, the perennial philosophy says there's one message, you know, and all the world's traditions um, at their roots say the same thing. To me, that was profound. Uh, and I especially was drawn to mysticism and direct forms of knowing, having, having been a little bit turned off by the hierarchical nature of the Catholic Church uh, and some of the things that were done uh, by the institution and the people who were in positions of power that weren't good, um, getting really turned off to that, but then realizing, oh, that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't something real in, to spirituality. And so um, I reconnected in a deep way, and uh, especially in the last several years, have uh, gotten much more deep into my own spirituality. This is a kind of a extended parenthesis, but... I've always been uh, a deep believer in the perennial wisdom or the perennial philosophy. And for years, I said that the perennial wisdom or perennial philosophy, uh, Leibniz was the first person to use the term. And then Aldous Huxley picked it up and wrote his famous book in 1943 called The Perennial Philosophy, which is where the <coughs> contemporary version of it tends to come from. Right. And then it's been picked up by many people. Um, but... Um, on two occasions, I said what I then believed, that the perennial philosophy was at the heart of all the great religious and spiritual traditions. And two people contradicted me. One was Mary Evelyn Tucker, who directs the Religion Environment Program at Yale and is a great historian of world religions. Mm -hmm. 
And she said, that's not true. She said the Confucian tradition really doesn't have the perennial philosophy at its heart. And the other person, whose name I'm blocking on, but he was a very great, maybe somebody else knows it, a great sociologist of religion at Berkeley. Bella. Who? Bella. Bella, Robert Bella. Mm -hmm. I also did a new school conversation with him, both with Mary Evelyn and with Robert Bella. And he flatly rejected the idea that there was a perennial mm. philosophy. So here we have mm. a, a, one of the greatest historians of religion, one of the greatest sociologists of religion, uh, taking issue with it from different points of view. Mary Evelyn pointing specifically to the Confucian tradition and Bella uh, saying, no, it just isn't so. So I've had to kind of revise. I mean, I, for a while, actually, when Mary Evelyn said this, I was kind of shocked because I held that so deeply. Mm. And then I thought, you know, it, it went through a kind of withdrawal, really, because mm. it was so important to me that mm. it was. And then I thought, well, what can I say that's true? And it seems to me what, what I can say that's true is that I still choose to believe in the perennial philosophy, mm. um, recognizing that there are exceptions. Uh, I certainly think it's true of the Abrahamic traditions, you know, the Jewish, Christian, and Sufi traditions. I would imagine if you really looked at all the, you know, uh, many, many different um, religions and spiritual traditions of all the peoples of the world, that it would probably not be true of all of them. Um, I keep seeing people assert it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that, but just as a parenthesis, I've had to come to, parenth- to mm-hmm. recognize that, for me at least, um, these critiques have made me limited. And yet, in that way, it became even more precious to me because mm-hmm. I had to recognize that this was a choice, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. for what it's worth, mm-hmm. yeah. for you yeah. to reflect on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so uh, your cousin uh, uh, introduced you to Gurdjieff and uh, Gurdjieff's work changed your life. Mm. What happened after that? Um, I think I started doing more reading. I think there was a way that I was intellectually interested mm-hmm. in different traditions, but also in mysticism and esoteric studies. So I read more of Gurdjieff. I read some of people who wrote about Gurdjieff. I read um, some things that were also about the Eastern Orthodox uh, Christian tradition. Um, read things like Rudolf Steiner mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So um, so there was, there was that. And then um, there at a certain point a number of years ago when I... Um, I'd been in psychotherapy as a client, as because you have to be, um, and I wanted to be being on a path, uh, trying to use the Enneagram in a good way. So I was in therapy for about 16 years, um, and there was a certain point at which I kind of felt, I mean, you're never really done, but I sort of felt like I was ready to not be in therapy for a period of time, maybe temporarily. Um, but I also had this intuition, like, I think it's time for more spiritual work. Uh, And I think part of it was being involved in the Enneagram. And so in the last maybe five to eight years, I would say I've been sort of, I've seen it more as a spiritual period of my life um, where I'm 
uh, I've been doing more practice and uh, trying to uh, just be more connected uh, spiritually. And part of it has been working with <clears throat> um, my business partner, my teaching partner, Urani Opias. Mm -hmm. He, for many years, was a bit, worked in business consulting and coaching with the Enneagram in Brazil. Uh, but a few years ago, um, decided not to do that anymore, now is devoting himself completely to spiritual practice with the Enneagram and has done deep work both in the Gurdjieff Fourth Way schools and also in the Sufi tradition. And so working with him on a regular basis has also been, uh, led me to have a lot of spiritual experiences uh, because of the work he does. Um, so it's sort of like a confluence of things that I think have brought me sort of a, a sort of out away from doing purely psychological work with the Enneagram to doing work that, that I consider much more spiritual. Even knowing that I can't always bring that in depending on the audience I'm with. Mm -hmm. Can you say any more about what you mean by doing more spiritual work? Sure. Um, uh, so I was sort of looking around for how can I, be, what practices should I do? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, And I was talking to a woman once and she suggested uh, self-realization fellowship, which is the Yogananda work. Mm -hmm. So um, I started getting the lessons and it, I love that school. There's something sort of simple and clean about it uh, because like, for instance, you can go on meditation retreats. They're not very expensive. They're, everything's very straightforward. There's not a lot of, mm -hmm. and I, I think I'm sensitive to sort of fluff that doesn't mean very much. <laughs> Um, I once had an astrological reading where the astrologer told me, he said, um, you're, you don't go in for gurus. It's just never going to be your thing. Um, you almost create your own spirituality. And he also said that in the work that I do, I won't be able to do anything unless I feel a sense of spiritual mission about it. Uh, and it's interesting because I think that's really true. Um, and what was your astrology? Uh, what was my? Astrology. What was my astrology? What's yeah. my sign? Yeah. I'm a Libra with uh, uh, Jupiter, I guess that's Sagittarius rising, and I have a Cancer moon. Mm. You know, one of the things that fascinates me about Enneagram and astrology and other archetypal systems is uh, what I always wonder is, so we're focused on, on Enneagram, but our friend Carolyn Casey, do you know her work at all? She's I've, I've heard a remarkable her, yeah. astrologer, yeah, yeah, yeah. friend of Jennifer Stoll's and, and many of us. And deepest astrological readings can be very profound. Mm, yes. So here's the question. Uh, it's also true, for example, that deep tarot readings can be profound. Mm. Deep I Ching readings can be profound. Right. So here's the question. How can these different archetypal systems, which come from such different places, mm. all be true, you know, mm. in, in a deep sense of true? How is it that so, for example, Enneagram is to me the most plausible because it's not assigned by birth. It's not, quote, random, you're picking tarot cards. It's mm -hmm. not random, you're picking an I Ching reading. Right. Those are profound by some other mechanism. Without Enneagram, you actually look at them until you figure out who you are. Mm -hmm. So that seems to me to be more as a different quality. But 
what I don't, I, to this day, I don't understand is, let's just take astrology. How can astrology be just as profound as Enneagram and just as useful when it's based just on the date you're born? I mean, how do you hold those two systems? So... Um, I think what, what Helen Palmer used to say about the Enneagram that I liked is she said, the types are self-verifying. Mm-hmm. It's like, you don't necessarily need a scientist to tell you this is valid because you can read this description and look at what you do right. and see that it's the same. And I even had a group of a, a venture capitalists say that to me one time. I was working with a senior t- leadership team of venture capitalists. And um, I had worked with them twice. And the first one, there was a guy in the group. This is a a tangent, but I think it's interesting. There was a guy in the group who was very challenging of me. Here I was presenting the Enneagram. He like, what is this thing? How do you know it? Is it scientifically? He was very challenging, skeptical. Well, it turned out he found his type. And he and his business partners on the senior leadership team ended up having this huge conversation where they resolved this conflict they'd been having ongoing for a long time because they figured out that this guy was a one and when he was objecting to what they wanted to do, it was on moral grounds, not because of other things. They clarified what was really going on. They had a great conversation. Come back two years later, the skeptical guy is still in the team. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, the skeptic's here. So he comes in and there's some new people on the team and I'm teaching the Enneagram and a new guy says, so is this scientifically validated? You know, it's kind of always the, the, the question you're not really looking forward to hearing. And before I can even say anything, the skeptic says, it doesn't matter, it doesn't need to be. You can just see it and see that you're doing it. And he said, and this was the best thing we've ever done on this team. You know, and I was like, wow. And I think that's the power of it. And it was interesting because um, and 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 because they all had like shared it with their spouses and had grown and it, it, it had been working for them. So. So the Enneagram, I think, has that going for it, that it's focus of attention. You know, you don't have to believe in anything, um, which is good. With things like astrology and tarot and the H I Ching, all of which I really like and participate in actively, um, I, I see them as different kinds of windows in the truth. You know, I think it's a spiritual belief, but I believe there is a real reality, you know, and we're in our subjective viewpoints of it. Um, But I'm always trying to understand, you know, what's meant to be? What am I meant to do? What's what's for my highest good? What's for the highest good of the people around me? And how can I know what that is? Uh, And I think um, I think with astrology, it's it's about probabilities. You know, here's what you're going to tend toward. Uh, and here's what to understand so that you can do something that might be good for you that you might not think of doing. Um, so when I first had an astrology reading, and this is actually part of my spiritual biography now that I'm thinking of it, um, it was in 1996, around then, and I was actually in a depression and I was having trouble. I had moved back to California from uh, Chicago and I was trying to write my dissertation and I was depressed, working as a waitress, not finishing my dissertation. Uh, not re- I'd gotten into therapy for the first time, but not really knowing where I was or what I wanted to be, or, or I was pretty lost. And I had an astrology reading, and it was the astrologer. My therapist actually referred me to this astrologer, and it got me out of that depression. Mm. Uh, I think it might be being a two, and I think sometimes being a two, uh, twos tend to 
you know, the attention goes to what other people want you to be or what you need to be to make other people like you. And so there can be a sense of not having a sense of self, mm. uh, of not knowing, well, what do I feel right now? You know, and that's been a process of me getting more connected with my feelings and my needs and all the things that I kind of tuned out so that I could be more tuned into connecting with people. Uh, and so when I think when I had this astrology reading, I heard him talk about things about me that he knew just from knowing my birth data that were true, right? So it was a little bit of the self-verifying thing. He said, you'll tend to do this and you'll tend to believe this and you tend to be like this. I'm like, wow, right, 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 you know? And so it gave me some confidence in what he was saying. Um, and there was almost like a kind of confirmation of who I was, you know, not really knowing who I was, shape-shifting to be what other people wanted me to be. It really helped me see that there is something very, there is a real self in me that I can know and work with. Um, and so that, that was really, really important. And I saw it as a window into knowing myself. And same with the I Ching and the Tarot. I mean, there's, a, there's an uncanny kind of way that um, I think it helps you tap into an intuitive knowing of what's going on. So how do you think it works? How do you think it is that these systems, one of them grounded in, you, you look at it and you recognize, mm -hmm. self-verifying in that sense. The Enneagram has that one up on the other systems. The other, mm -hmm. either birth date or quote chance or mm -hmm. synergy, whatever you want mm -hmm. to call it. You know, the, the closest I've been able to come is that perhaps these other systems, other than Enneagram work, and maybe Enneagram works partly this way, is that they, um, they constellate when you get, you're asking for something when you do it. You're seeking something, and you're seeking something in some sense from a higher place, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you get an answer and that answer is framed in archetypal terms that constellate an archetypal response from you mm -hmm. that feels deeply true. Yeah. And so the way, my best explanation of how all these different systems can work is that even though they come from different traditions and they ask different questions, they're framed in archetypal terms that constellate an archetypal response. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense, especially it brings us back to Jung. <clears throat> exactly. Right? Jung saying that there's the individual unconscious and there's right. the collective unconscious. Right. And there's a way that we're all kind of tapping in right. to these archetypal truths at right. the basis of things. Right, right. But Enneagram has this enormous benefit that you look at them and decide as opposed to it being random. And then it has these powerful internal arrows and wings and so on and so forth, which if you think about it, I mean, you have two internal arrows, you have one or two possible wings, you have three subtypes. So if you do all the math, you know, 27 uh, plus, I can't even do the math, 27 plus two wings is another, what, 54, you know. Uh, you end up with, uh, uh, and you end up with a, a very large number of points of reference around the circle that can constellate different things. Right. Right. Okay. Right, and that's why I always say that one of the nice things about the Enneagram is it can seem at first people will sometimes say, oh, it's, I don't, it's putting me in a box or it's limiting me by making me one of these nine types. 
But the system, the whole system, actually works to describe the complexity of the human personality very well because it has these different elements. And one of the things I talk about is not only subtypes, like which instinct is dominant, but your subtype sequence. So there are two, there are basically six subtypes if you count, like I've got self-preservation first and social second, and then someone might have self-preservation first and sexual second, you know, and then they might be different. So there are these subtleties that I think are explained by the system um, that help us understand uh, some of the nuances of our personality. Is it true that when you, if once, for example, I'm Enneagram 5 with either social or sexual at the top of the stack, um, is it true that when I go to eight that I should be looking at the same subtypes for guidance as to where I go in eight? Um, I'm not exactly sure what the final answer is of that. We're still exploring that. Yeah. But I think my, my, my working theory is all things being equal, we stay with our dominant instinct when we go to an airline point, mm -hmm. um, unless there's a reason not to, like maybe you had a parent who is that type, who is a different subtype, mm -hmm. uh, and they had an influence over you. Like I'm, um, I had, I grew up in a family of four, both my brother and my father are ones, mm -hmm. and my mother and I are twos. Um, and so, um, and th this is sort of one of my problems with wings, by the way, is like, do I have a one wing, or is it just that I grew up in a family of four with two, where 50% of the people were ones? Mm -hmm. So it, kind of made sense that I would learn to relate to ones and I'd be kind of one-ish myself, that I would develop some of those tendencies. Um, so that's one thing. So my father and my brother are both social ones. Mm -hmm. So I do find that I don't relate as much to the self-preservation one, uh, which is one of my wings. You would think that I might go there. So I feel like I'm a little more social one-ish. Um, but with everything else, like with three... And with four, I, my, I'm a two, I, my arrow line points go to four and eight. I relate most to the self-preservation eight and the self-preservation four. Hmm. You're listening to part two of a two-part TNS conversation with Beatrice Chestnut and host Michael Lerner. So when you say we're still working on that, I don't have a final answer. Who is the we in that sentence? Well, right now I'm doing a lot of this theoretical work and then finding ways to apply it with my teaching partner, Uranio Pius, who I've mentioned yeah. a few times. So yeah. he and I are very aligned around a lot of this theory. And we, um, we've, we have a very complementary partnership mm -hmm. because his, uh, his forte at the moment is uh, he is a very intuitive and a, a deep spiritual uh, vision around a lot of this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I come more from the psychotherapy angle. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a five. He comes more from the head. Mm -hmm. I'm a two. I, I bring more of the heart mm -hmm. uh, to the partnership. So, um, so we're um, developing. We're both developing workshops and learning opportunities. But we're also always trying to improve the way we use the theory and the way we understand the symbolism and the meaning of the enneagram. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about how Enneagram is held in different cultures, and there's an international Enneagram association. Then there are national associations as well? Or, uh, there are some regional associations, yeah. So, and um, you talked a little about the, the politics of Enneagram in different places. Um, how has the International Enneagram Association changed over the many years you've been involved with it? I mean, I've heard some people say that... Um, 
I don't know this to be true, that uh, some of the more commercial elements have come more to the fore. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. true. Yeah, um, you know, I, I was involved in the leadership for six years, and I would say um, it, it's not what I hoped it would be. Um, mm -hmm. I do think that, I think they're, they're good people, especially now on the board, mm -hmm. uh, trying, working very hard to make it uh, serve the needs of the community. Mm -hmm. I do think over time there have been a couple of unfortunate trends. Mm -hmm. um, starting from early on, you know, it was created by an uneasy alliance by some of the original American Enneagram teachers and a mm -hmm. couple other people, uh, a, a guy from Germany. Um, and there was a lot of disagreement and conflict there. And uh, so that in some ways... Uh, set a tone. I mean, I give them a lot of credit for coming together despite all that, you know, and so I think what they did was uh, really important and really great. Um, but those sort of different camps or different schools of thought uh, mm -hmm. competing with each other a little bit, that sort of held true for a long time. Uh, and we kept trying to say, oh, well, that's over now, but it there were signs that it wasn't quite over. And I do think another big unfortunate trend is that sometimes it's more about people coming together to kind of each show off what they do and in a little bit more in competition, more of the commercial aspect you're saying, rather than sort of come together and build community and work together. You know, one of my big disappointments has been that that doesn't happen around Enneagram theory. You know, for instance, with the subtypes, we had this new influx of information from one of the seminal, you know, originators of the system, at least in the way we use it today, um, and I found that people were not very open to listening to what I had to say about what I thought was great about what Naranjo was teaching. Um, and so there was a big question for me of like, how are we moving Enneagram, before, Enneagram theory forward as a community if people are really more focused on what they're doing and, and more uh, kind of how they're bringing it forward in their individual work as opposed to what's good for the system or what's good for the larger community. And some, some people wouldn't even acknowledge there is a community. So it's, it's, I've, I've hoped for more of a coming together, more of a, a supportive community that is really open and really puts the needs of the work first. And it always, hasn't always been that way. And on the one hand, I can understand it. Uh, and it's funny because I think probably the biggest reason that it's an irony that um, here you have a community of people dedicated to learning about and rising above the ego that in some cases haven't been able to rise above the ego. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that's probably, you know, understandable in a way to a point. Yeah, I mean, not only not rise above the ego um, without going into specifics, we, we had a, a recent new school guest um, who was involved with somebody who was... Um, you know, early in the Enneagram community who, who turned out to be a, a very destructive personality. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that's true of every religious, spiritual, or archetypal order is that it is no guarantor of ethics or good practice or anything else. Right. You can be deeply adept in it and still be a destructive human being. You right. know? So it doesn't guarantee anything. 
Right, right, yeah. right. Especially yeah. since there are those blind spots right. we talked about, you know. Yeah. And that's why I tend to come out, like, I, I don't feel judgmental about people who decide not to be on a spiritual path or mm. a growth path. But I do, it's hard for me not to judge people who, like, teach the Enneagram or bring the, or, like, kind of get involved in bringing the Enneagram to other people when they aren't doing their own work. Right. That's, that's, that's harder, although I'm working on it. Yeah, no, I understand <laughs> So how, in your imagination, suppose uh, you were to set out to imagine a way of bringing Enneagram theory forward in a way that you would like. Mm. Uh, what would that look like? Imagine that there was a small community of people that wanted to join you in that. Mm. What would that look like? I think it would look like um, two things come to mind. Um, one thing is coming together to have discussions, mm -hmm. you know, to sort of uh, take points of either disagreement or things that haven't been fully figured out yet and have a really free-flowing, wide-ranging discussion and, mm -hmm. and really trying to set up some ground rules about listening to everyone and uh, keeping an open mind and uh, being aware of your blind spots. Um, and I think because it's hard to be aware of blind spots, I think hand in hand with that would be another thing that, that might be people who are doing the work together, mm -hmm. you know, finding different ways of combining both talking about, learning about, um, moving forward, uh, what we know together, but also best practices in terms of how you use the system and, you know, talking about ethics and, um, kind of setting an ethic that if you're working with the system in a certain way, you need to be doing certain things and mm -hmm. and things like that. I'm giving a talk at this year's IEA conference, um, and I've never given International Enneagram, International Enneagram Association conference, and my topic is going to be a little bit challenging this year. Um, the topic is going to be. It's a little bit like mm -hmm. one of the blogs that you cited that I yeah. that I wrote. It's going to be how how you know if you're really doing your psychological enneagram work, mm -hmm. uh, because I think sometimes people think they are, and often well intentioned and well meaning, but they aren't. Uh, and so, how do you know? I think that's a valid so how question. How do you know? <laughs> <laughs> should have seen that coming. Um, I think there are certain things that you should be doing and certain things that you should be able to do or be trying to be able to do. Um, for instance, um, like some basic things, like you should be able to say, please, thank you, and I'm sorry. I can't tell you about how many people I've run into in the Enneagram community and other places who can't say they're sorry who can't, you have a conflict with them. And in my mind, the way you resolve conflict, and the Enneagram is very helpful in this, is each person looks at themselves and says, okay, what am I bringing to the table here? You know, what might I have done that contributed to this? And I need to be humble in that. And humility is a big thing. And that's another one of the ones, another point. Um, but I think there are a lot of people who I'd, I've interacted with who you have a conflict and all they can do is point at you. And I've even said, okay, I'll be the bigger person you're pointing at me. I'll own what I can own about that, but push back if I don't think it's right. And then I'll go further and I'll own more of what I could have done better and what I didn't see at the time and what I feel bad about and what I can apologize about. But then I'm like, okay, now it's your turn. And, they, and then it's, well, you did this and you did this and you did that. They can't own their own side of it. Um, so I see that a lot. And to me, that's a big signal. Another one is not being able to take in feedback. 
you know? And I know I feel defensive when I'm going to get feedback. So I understand that when we get feedback, even if it's positive, it can be feel a little bit like we're not really sure what's going to happen. But I think you need to be able to hear from other people how you impact them. And if you're not open to that, then it's going to be hard to really take in all the information you might need to. Another thing is, I think if you're, I mean, again, I don't, I wouldn't say everyone has to do therapy. Um, well, I could, but I won't. <laughs> but I will say, if you're in, if you're a therapist or you're you know, a coach or you're teaching other people the Enneagram or coaching or being a therapist using the Enneagram, you should be, you should have done some therapy or you should be doing therapy. Um, if you're using the Enneagram in a way that touches on spirituality, you should be doing your spiritual work. Um, so think things like this, um, you should be able to say when you're wrong, mm. you know, you should be able to admit that. And mm. these are all kinds of things that sometimes when I'm interacting with people who I suspect haven't done their work or aren't doing their work, that, that those are the things I find that you mm. run into difficulties. I'd like to, um, ask you to help, uh, those students of, of Enneagram who, uh, want to read your work and want to look at other people. Um, and I think I'll start with uh, Riso and Hudson. This, uh, the mystery, the, the wisdom of the Enneagram. When people ask me for kind of a, uh, a starting text, uh, you know, they have the Enneagram Institute online. The types are right online. To me, this is kind of Enneagram 101 in a simple form. At least that's how I hold it. Mm -hmm. How do you hold the Riso and Hudson group? So, um, so I'll be honest. Yeah. So I think there are some things that are really good about it. Yeah. Um, I think that they did a really nice job describing the types in a right. way that people can relate right. to and right. find themselves yeah, yeah, yeah. in. Yeah. I also really like their little three-question test at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think it's really great to mm -hmm. have such a short test. I think most Enneagram tests are not good, but that one is. Um, and I think they uh, overall are holding it in a, a good way. They give themselves a lot of credit for having developed the low-function, medium, and high-functioning thing. Right. Do they deserve the credit they give themselves for that? I think uh, partly yes, partly no. Mm -hmm. I think partly yes because I think it's just an important insight right. that there are levels of development, right. that there are there is a vertical dimension yeah. to this. Right. So that a person who is very unaware and hasn't done much inner work right. of a certain type is going to look different than someone of that right. same type who has done a lot of inner work. Um, so I think that's an important insight. Um, I come from academics, and so my part of my problem with, with the wisdom of the Enneagram and with the levels is it I find it atheoretical. Mm. Um, I want to know, I, I, would, I would feel better about it if it was uh, rooted in or connected to uh, some kind of theory, uh, mm. established theory, or some way of something that makes me think this is based on something more than one guy's idea, mm -hmm. even if that guy is really great and really smart. Mm -hmm. Um, another thing that I, uh, that I don't, the only, one of the things I don't like about it is they took the liberty to change certain things from the original, hmm. right? And I'm an academic, so this is partly my bias what in the way change? I think. Well, for instance, they called the wings subtypes, and then they called what I'm calling subtypes and what Naranjo calls subtypes instinctual variants. Uh-huh. Um, so it's just confusing. It's confu- it yeah. adds to, it's, there's, 
unbelievable confusion yeah. around the subtypes because yeah. people refer to the 27 subtypes, which is the three versions of each of the nine types, um, as instincts because oh, yeah. in the Riso Hunson world, um, they're called instinctual variants, and then people call them instincts for short. I see. So someone will say, I'm going to a workshop on the instincts, mm -hmm. right? And what they really mean is the subtypes, but they're calling it, well, and the instincts are something. The instincts right. are important, an important concept that's different than the subtypes. So there's been enormous confusion about that. And I think the way they described wings, I don't agree. Mm -hmm. I don't agree it's a static list of traits, a kind of subtype of the main mm -hmm. type. I think it's much more fluid. I, I do agree that wings have an influence and they color your main type, but I think it varies a great deal from person to person depending mm -hmm. on your history. Now, um, A.H. Almas and Sandra Maitre have worked together for a long time, and I think they were both in early on with Naranjo. Yes. A.H. Uh, Almas, who heads uh, his school, what's his school called? The Ridwan School or Ridwan, the, Diamond Heart, right, the Diamond Approach. Right, Diamond Approach. Uh, Faces of Unity, the Enneagram of Holy Ideas, and then Sandra Maitre, um, the Enneagram uh, of Passions and Virtues and the Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. um, and I appreciate your candor. That's really helpful to all of us. I have found these books uh, useful and interesting. Um, I think uh, Facets of Unity, uh, the Enneagram of Holy Ideas, the reason that's been useful to me is that precisely because uh, the Enneagram focuses on on defects. Mm. Uh, uh, the idea that each of these points is also a face of God mm. mm -hmm. uh, is a way of, I mean, without dwelling on the higher dimensions in order to soften this, mm -hmm. which I'm not into, but I am into recognizing that these are nine faces of the divine. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious how you hold uh, the approach to this in the Ridwan School, which is a, a principal approach that they do a lot of Enneagram work. What, how do you hold their work? So I think, uh, I think the fact that they were in Naranjo's, connected to Naranjo from early on mm -hmm. really shows in, yeah. in their theory and the, the fact that it's grounded mm -hmm. in such a solid foundation. So I, I, I really like, mm -hmm. uh, I'm a big fan of Almas's work and Sandra mm -hmm. Matri's. Mm -hmm. I think Almas's, I, I agree, I think that it's very important for us to understand the higher aspects. Mm -hmm. uh, and there aren't very many books on that except for mm -hmm. these. Um, and I think that people make a mistake sometimes, I think, when they work with the types without leaving room for, explicit room for those higher aspects to show up. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly we shouldn't think we're there before we actually are, because I think that's what a lot of people end up find, thinking of like, oh, I'm so far along the path when really they aren't as far as they think. However, I also think it really helps to be understanding what the holy idea, what the higher idea, mental capacity, what the higher virtue or, or heart capacity is for each of the types. And I think Almas does a beautiful job. Um, he's written many books. Um, some of them I find rough going only because mm -hmm. it's like he's so, he understands so much. He's a five and he's, yeah. and so some of it goes over my head, frankly, mm -hmm. but, um, but a lot of it is really great. And he's also, rooted in psychological theory mm -hmm. as well. So I find them much more satisfying mm -hmm. because they come from uh, a, a really solid theoretical base. And I really like Sandra Maitri's books. I think they're 
they combine really good theory and a deep, very uh, accurate and helpful understanding of the system and the types and all the aspects with uh, accessibility. <laughs> I think she, her her books are easier to read and they are very inspiring in the way they um, they're very. She does a great job uh, of really sort of telling the story of say the passions mm -hmm. and the virtues and the spiritual path and what each type lost contact with. Uh, and what that means for how mm -hmm. their personality type patterns play out. So I, I those are, and, and when I wrote The Complete Enneagram, my main sources were Claudio Naranjo's work and, and Almas and, and Sandra Maitri. Mm -hmm. yeah. And those are the main, main authors I draw on. You talk about having heard Richard Rohr early on and how, what a powerful impact he had. It's called The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective. Right. And I think this is a lovely book. It's a it's yeah. a great book. Yeah. yeah, I originally was uh, introduced to him. I got a series of audio tapes. Remember yeah. back when we had cassette tapes? Right. 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 <laughs> I had a bunch of his cassette tapes, and I'll never forget one of the stories I like the most was he said his secretary, when she found out she was a two, she cried for two weeks. <laughs> I loved that. I'm like, I know how she feels. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, and Richard Rohr, I've seen him speak, and he is an incredibly powerful speaker. He was, I saw him speak. He, for me, he was the highlight of the first uh, International Enneagram Conference that happened at Stanford in 1994. Uh, and he talked about the Wheel of Fortune uh, and, and as a symbol. And he talked about how in our culture, and especially American culture, there's a way that we're very connected to the ascent but we have nothing that teaches about the descent yes. and how the Enneagram was great about teaching us about the descent. And it was an amazing talk and he got a standing ovation mm. at the end and totally wow. deserved it. It was, And it was something that was incredibly inspiring. And so I'm a big fan of Richard Rohr. I think he's a, a, a powerful voice for the Enneagram and in the way that it should be studied. And speaking of the power of the descent, um, I mean, in Jung's sense, uh, the archetype of the wounded healer, uh, I mean, if we want to understand ourselves, uh, it's often through the wound. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it's uh, Dame Edith Sitwell said about William Blake, he was cracked, but it was through the crack that the light came. Right, I love that And quote. Leonard Cohen actually repeated that line. Yes. But the, uh, that sense that if we are able to look at our wound, mm. it actually is the place of entry in many respects. Yeah, that's yeah. and that goes on my list of things yeah. that you need to be doing to do the work. And um, what I'm increasingly talking about, partly because it's such a beautiful lesson from Dante's Divine Comedy, yes. that to go up, you must go down. You must go down. That's, and, what, that's what Virgil says at the very beginning. And your, your blog post on that, by the way, the blog post I assume was written after your book. Yes. Yeah, because you, in effect, you're going deeper into Dante mm. after the book, and and you point out how Dante, it starts where he he awakens and lost in a woods, mm -hmm. right? Right, right. He Which awakens is, yes. lost in a woods. It's a reference to being asleep. You exactly. know, he he literally yeah. says yeah. he was he was sleepy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And then, of course, Helen Palmer, The Enneagram, Understanding Yourself and Others in Your Life, The Enneagram and Love and Work. Um, you, you credit Helen Palmer as a, one of the early people that you worked with. You've spoken of her as a gifted intuitive. How do you hold her work now? 
Um, you know, I think of Helen as, um, you know, she was definitely one of my first teachers. I think Helen's incredibly wise. Uh, I think she's been really courageous and uh, valiant in her uh, desire for the Enneagram to come forward in the best ways possible. Mm -hmm. It's why, in part why she, she and David Daniels pioneered the panel method of mm -hmm. learning the types, like hearing the types speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. I think that was an enormous contribution. You know, I think you always, you always have a connection to your first book that you read. So I, I like her, you know, I, uh, you know, her reading about myself through her first book and even the way she introduces the Enneagram in the beginning, I think uh, really was helpful and worked for me. So I think I have a connection to that. Um, I, in her Enneagram and Love and Workbook, um, I love her descriptions of the, the couples. The couples. And both work couples and romantic couples. Mm -hmm. And I think they're, they're, they're sort of concise and yet really good. Um, mm -hmm. And I use those a lot when I've worked with couples and I've shown them to, to couples and they've said that's exactly our dynamic. Uh, so I think that was a brilliant contribution as well. And of course she... She has a beautiful quote on your book. I'm especially pleased to see Chestnut's credible research support for the renewal of this historic system in a postmodern setting. Work of this caliber, caliber invigorates the dialogue between science, mysticism, and psychology, streams of thought that have become estranged. Um, she dedicates one of her books to uh, one of the great uh, Gurdjieff teachers, actually, uh, Lord, um, who was it? Was it Ben? I think Bennett was her, one of not, her teachers. Bennett may have been one of them, but there's another, Lord Pentley, mm, mm -hmm. who actually started the Gurdjieff work on the West Coast. Mm, mm -hmm. And you know what's interesting is that the traditional Gurdjieff people put down the Enneagram of personality. That's right, yeah. But the Enneagram of personality people are honest about their debt to Gurdjieff. So it's kind of a not reciprocal... Although I, although I would say that many people who are interested in the Enneagram don't take the time to really get really get into Gurdjieff. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, it can be tough going and it's tricky, but, yeah. um, and there's, it can be hard to know which source, there's a lot of people who've written about him. Um, I think Kathleen Spieth's book is very good. It's, you know, small yes. and, and, and accessible. Uh, but I think I, I sometimes wish that more people who are interested in the Enneagram would read more about Gurdjieff or about what he taught. Right. And I've saved uh, your favorite, Claudia Naranjo, for <laughs> almost last year. The Enneagram of Society, Healing Soul to Heal the World, Enneatype Structures, Self-Analysis for the Seeker. And then you mentioned a character in Neurosis, an integrative view. So if you were proposing an order for people to, who wanted to read Naranjo to read him, mm. what order would you read them in? So um, I think character neurosis is tough going if mm -hmm. you're not uh, in the psychology field. Mm -hmm. um, I do like his introduction. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know what it's like if you don't have any, if you don't have that background. Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't start with that one necessarily, although there's some good stuff in there that, that 
people mm -hmm. will like. Um, I think the Enneagram of Society is actually pretty readable. Mm -hmm. um, and it does some interesting things in that he applies the Enneagram types to the collective. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of talking about how, say, type nine kind of corresponds to the education system because there's a lot of bureaucracy and it moves really slow and it's hard to get things done mm -hmm. and things like that. And he does that with all the types, sort of talking about how they apply to the collective uh, in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I introduced you to an Enneagram book, which you actually yes. didn't know, by right. my college roommate and beloved friend, Christian Wurtenbaker, who is a senior Gurdjieff person in New York. And he wrote a new book called The Enneagram of G.I. Gurdjieff, Mathematics, Metaphysics, Music, and Meaning, which is an astonishing uh, piece of work on the mathematics and music uh, and metaphysics of the Enneagram. And it does stuff that I haven't seen anybody else done in, in terms of... I want that, that book. Yeah, The yeah. Intelligent Enneagram has some of that by Blake. Oh, I don't know that. Um, but this, I, I'm very interested in that book. I love, I mean, that's one of the things I love about the Enneagram is that it's it's got a mathematical basis. Yes. I mean, it's, you know... Profound mathematics. Oh, yeah. It's it, it And so it, it's all laid out, and that's, you know, sort of the definition of sacred geometry, but, th but it has this mathematical um, order to it that's really beautiful. So who did you... Yeah. The intelligent... Enneagram, this one? Oh, Christian Wurtenbaker... The Enneagram of G.I. Gurdjieff. Uh, you can find it online. Thank you. Um, Wurtenbaker, Christian Wurtenbaker. You spoke of the Intelligent Enneagram intelligent by A.G.E. By Blake. Uh, so these are the books I've been working with. What are the other books that a novice that wants to get into this should uh, consider? So a novice. Well, not a novice, but somebody who knows that they don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, interestingly, I actually think The Enneagram Made Easy mm -hmm. is a great book. Okay. Um, and Who's that by? It's by um, Liz Wagle, Elizabeth Wagala, uh, and she may have written that with Renee Barron. Okay. Um, Wagala, W-A-G-E-L-E. -E. Um, she passed away. Cartoons? Yes, yeah. it's the one with the cartoons. And it's got cartoons, and it's very simple, but it's I find it quite accurate and helpful. Okay. Like, for instance, I taught a class to at the high school that I was a counselor at uh, a number of years ago, and I cut and paste some cartoons and, and things from her book, and they loved it, you know, and I think it's it helps people get access to the Enneagram in a very simple way, but it's not simplistic. Mm -hmm. She does a nice job of, of uh, really being true to the integrity of the types without making it overly mm -hmm. uh, watered down. It's, it's, it's nice, and it's kind of funny. It's fun. Any others come to mind? Um, Karen Webb um, is a British woman who has been affiliated with the narrative tradition and the Helen Palmers, and she mm -hmm. has a nice, I would call it an introductory book. Mm -hmm. Um, that is that is solid. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what about the online sources? I mean, there are dozens of online mm -hmm. sources on Enneagram. Are there any that, in addition to your excellent website, are there any you particularly like? 
Not really any I can okay. think of. Okay. I would be careful around that. Yeah. I see a lot of stuff online that is doesn't that has information that is that where they don't cite the sources. Right. Right. And I know they haven't made it up or I've seen it somewhere else. Right. Um, like recently someone wrote to me asking if they could use some of my work on as part of something they were doing. And mm -hmm. most people don't ask. And I, I, there's plagiarism. I mean, I think it's, I, I'd be careful with the online yeah. stuff because okay. anyone okay. can put something okay. up there these days. And don't forget your own 27 types. Well, yes, I mentioned this before. Thank yeah. you for that. The yeah. Enneagram uh, Systems, 27 Personal Subtypes. And again, your book on leadership, uh, which, uh, as I say, I haven't spent as much time. I've been totally immersed in this. Okay. So, uh, but I will be spending more time. But this is a lovely a little book. And you also have a single page that you sometimes hand out that has all yes. 27 subtitles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I mean, know if that's a, available or not. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a two-pager. Yeah, I'm going to try to make that available yeah, on my website yeah, soon yeah, just for download, yeah. a PDF of just the 27 subtypes on one page. So speaking of the 27 subtypes, because we had a, a strong interest in that, you're listening to part two of a two-part TNS conversation with Beatrice Chestnut and host Michael Lerner. Let's, let's delve into that. We're not going to cover all of them. But if you were to start, um, start, with, start with me. Uh, okay. Uh, Enneagram 5, I think. I think my stack is either sexual, social, self prez or... Uh, social, sexual, self press So how would I figure out what the top of my stack was? Well, I think especially because I've heard that you like the method of finding your type of right. reading about it right. and seeing and observe, self-observing, which right. I actually think right. is the best way, mm -hmm. um, I would do that. And I think that part of it is, um, so I think with the social five, um, you're going to find more focus on the intellect and mm -hmm. less on the feel on emotions. One-to-one mm -hmm. um, -one or sexual fives are tend to, um, they don't always show it mm -hmm. on the outside. Like uh, they look the same as other fives, mm -hmm. but they have more of a romantic streak. There's mm -hmm. more emotion in, on the inside that kind of wants to get out, you mm -hmm. know, oftentimes gets expressed through mm -hmm. um, some sort of artistic expression mm -hmm. or something like that or in relationship. Um, social fives, I mean, it's funny. I mean, just sort of standing back and looking at your life mm -hmm. um, or what you've created, mm -hmm. I might say social five might mm -hmm. be in, in the first place because in a way you've created a very social five mm -hmm. entity, you know, mm -hmm. um, something that is, you know, so social fives tend to dedicate their lives to a cause mm -hmm. or causes, mm -hmm. important causes that they feel very uh, strongly about, that they... Um, uh, intellectually uh, relate to in terms of, you know, the way they think about things and what they think is important uh, and kind of the super ideals that mm -hmm. are part of the totem, as it's called, um, these high ideals and uh, how to put that out there in the world, how to connect with others through those ideals and in community to make things happen. Um, so sometimes it's about looking at at what's going on in your life and what you focus on and mm -hmm. what's important to you. Um, for instance, I had a friend of mine who was a nine 
Um, and he had thought he was uh, sexual or one-to-one nine. He thought that was first. Uh, and then he came to one of my subtype workshops and I show film clips and things and he cried a lot at the social nine film clip. Uh, and then um, all of a sudden he took a step back and he looked at his whole life and he realized, so social nines tend to get drafted into leadership positions because they're very humble and they work very hard uh, to for the group. Uh, oftentimes there's an underlying thing of wanting to belong. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, when he stood back in everything he had ever been cr- involved in, in his whole life, he had at some point been the leader of that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes it was being pushed into it by others or being drafted into it because he was such a nice guy. Um, but he had been, and he had played a mediating role in his high-level job at the National Institutes of Health in Washington, D.C. There were all these things that he could look at and say, this is clearly, you know, dominating my experience, even in a way that I didn't see until I took a step back. Um, so I think part of part of it is that, um, you know, what's been most important? Has it been um, creating community, putting backing causes that I have strong values and ideals around, or is it more around one-to-one connection mm-hmm. and expressing connection and finding an ideal of spiritual connection or mystical union, mm-hmm. Is, mm-hmm. as it's sometimes phrased by uh, sec- sexual fives, are often, uh, you know, they have much more of a need for intimacy, but under the right circumstances. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're a lot, they're always looking for that ideal relationship. Mm-hmm. It can be in a partner, but it can also be in a spiritual teacher or some other kind of teacher or in, uh, you know, close friends, but they're always looking for, uh, to, to, they want more uh, out of these specific connections. So suppose you experience both in yourself. And for me, also the self-preservation five. So, I mean, my experience is I experience all three, mm-hmm. uh, but stacked in that order, but probably social first, sexual second, self-preservation third. Mm-hmm. But I can see expressions of all three of them. Now, you said that very often the third one is repressed. Right. But is it necessarily repressed? I mean... It's usually repressed. Now, one thing you might want to look at is if things were different for you when you were younger. Yeah. You know, because I think what happens as we go through life is we we address what's not there, right, what's right. not working or the missing right, piece, right. you know. And so if you may have repressed something at some point, um, you, that may not have worked so well. And so right. there may be a way that over time you've gotten more in touch with it. So that might be one thing is to look at your, your trajectory, your, mm. your journey and, and seeing like, have I sort of addressed these things because they weren't like in the forefront for me, uh, but I needed to do that to create more balance or wholeness in my life. I can't remember whether I read it in you, but they talk about the avarice of the five, and the fives often hoard knowledge and space, or knowledge and time, mm-hmm. which is absolutely true of me. I hoard knowledge, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, I I, I'm, I uh, try to ration my interaction time. You know, I mm-hmm. want to know is the meeting going to take an hour? You know, right? You know that kind of thing. Right. But um, but so. I can work against, oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. We know that the natal or the early childhood point in theory remains the same throughout life, right? Mm -hmm. But we also know that as you go on, the other points may become maybe even more important than the natal point, or at least 
maybe not more important because you're expressing it through that, but you're mm -hmm. opening to all the other mm -hmm. points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think the the whole idea behind the Enneagram, it's a model of wholeness. Right. And so in some ways you're wanting to, so if you look at the arrow, the, this, the, the, the circle with the arrow lines, in some ways, if we're thinking of it as in motion, we should be moving through all the right. points, right? If we're following the arrow lines. Right. But but having a personality and identifying with a type is a sort of stubborn way of clinging to one thing. Right. Um, but the more you use the Enneagram and the more you're able to integrate other types and the strengths of other types, the more whole you get, the more you'll be able to do things, more things. You add to your toolkit the strengths of the other types. Uh, so yes, I think you stay one type throughout your life um, and you broaden your abilities based on being able to integrate the strengths of other types and not be so fixated or defended uh, in your uh, early point of view. And so does the, do the three subtypes stacks, do they stay the same through your life? So um, the subtype... The subtype sequence, and we call it a sequence only because stack seems a little bit right. too static for okay. us, and we see these as energies or almost a dialectical movement uh -huh. of energy. That's nice. So we're calling it sequence, and I think it's my sense that um, just like we're born with type, we're born with an instinctual uh, bias yeah. preference. Yeah. Um, I think that they can shift. Mm -hmm throughout life, mm. you know, I don't think it gets, you get such a radical shift as going from one being dominant to another being dominant. Mm -hmm. I don't think the shift happens that way. However, I do think uh, the ones that are, the, the one, and this is how it's important to work with the instincts, the dominant instinct, it's important to learn to rein that in, to relax it, to let it not be over-functioning in the way mm. it over-functions. You know, so like I'm learning not to be thinking about food all the time, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, oh, it might be okay if I don't. Um, uh, and so, and so bringing that down. And then the second one, allowing it to be there more if, you know, for me, social is second. And when I first was in like a leadership position, it was very difficult for me. When I was first talking in front of people, it was very hard for me. Mm -hmm. Now I've been able to learn it. And I, you know, learned, I trained in group facilitation at Stanford Business School as a way of getting better at this. And I've been able to get better at it. It's still not my first. I don't like pay attention to the group at the expense of paying attention to what I'm gonna have for lunch mm -hmm. or dinner. Um, but it is, I've, I've gotten much better at that. now. Uh, my sexual instinct is repressed. And so um, that can be just something that I'm sort of avoiding or have given up on. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we can bring that up, mm -hmm. you know, by paying a lot of attention to, okay, when am I avoiding a situation? How might I move toward it? How can mm -hmm. I bring this more into the picture? Mm -hmm. So I think the sense is to bring those up and to bring this one down. Now, um, if we look at, if we think about the person in terms of the whole psyche, in terms of, say, the, the fixations and the passions, which I think are probably the most important things to pay attention to. So the to. fixations are cognitive and the passions are emotional. Are emotional, exactly. And they're, so it's the fixated, the, 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 the mental fixation and the, the emotional passion. When we're focusing on those, the idea is, is that the more inner work we do mm -hmm. around being conscious of those, um, the more we aim for the higher aspects, which mm -hmm. are sort of the opposite places. Like for me, pride is um, pride is the lower emotional experience, but then the virtue is humility. 
So the more I can focus on humility, uh, the better the better off. And same with the for me, flattery is the fixation. Uh, and then the higher the holy idea would be holy will. Um, so with twos, it's like we think we can control everything. We substitute our will for a higher will or the idea that everything is going to work out the way it's supposed to. Um, so these are the really important things to be working on when you're doing this. Now, the instincts, uh, when we're in the lower side of our personality, the instincts, as uh, Naranjo puts it, they're bound up by the passion. Mm -hmm. They're distorted. So there's an over-distortion of the dominant instincts, there's an under-distortion of the repressed instinct, and there's sometimes either too much or too little of the middle instinct. And so, but this is animal wisdom, right? In health, in the high side, uh, the, the, sort of uh, the sort of analogous level, um, the instincts are the same at the higher level, at the high, when we're in our higher aspects, but they're undistorted. So in other words, we attend to them as needed. You know, if you're hungry, you eat. If you're cold, you do this. If you need companionship, you find it. If you need to feel connected to the group, that happens. You know, so it becomes more uh, free-flowing. It, it comes more, the instincts get triggered as needed in the proper proportion. Mm. Now, each of the uh, subtypes um, of the three in each case, there's one countertype. Right. Right. Say a little about the countertype. So this was something I learned from Naranjo in 2004. I'd never heard this before. Um, he said that for each of the types, there are three subtypes. One is, he said, kind of a little upside down. Kind of goes against the main flow of the type. Uh, there are two that are kind of like a with the flow of the type or the en main energetic direction. There's one that's a little bit different. Um, and this is very interesting. And one of the main reasons to know it, about the countertypes is countertypes account for a lot of mistyping. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, mistyping is rampant in the Enneagram world. A lot of people don't have a hard time finding their types or think they're one type for a period of time and then realize they're actually a different type. Um, and the subtypes, one big reason why it's important to know the Naranjo version of the subtypes, it, it, it helps enormously in clarifying your type and helping people find their type. Uh, now, I find a lot of countertypes are mistyped because they're often a type that looks a lot like a different type or doesn't really look like that type. Uh, and I think a great example is, is self-preservation four. Um, and I'm, I was... When I wrote the complete Enneagram, I paid particular attention to the four chapter because I think fours get a lot of negative projections in the world and much more than they deserve. Uh, and so I really wanted to convey what fours are in a way that was true to their experience but that didn't allow for people to project excessively on them. Now, self-preservation four is a four that doesn't look like a four. Right. Um, Suck it up and deal with it. It's yeah. You don't share your feelings. Right. You don't. You you might feel bad inside, but you right. put on a happy face. Yeah. Right. So this is a four that didn't exist, and you, mm. I still see people uh, saying, "Oh well, if you're a four, you can't be happy." Or the counterphobic six, right? Or the counterphobic six. Now, the counterphobic six is the is the countertype that we all knew about right. before this. We just didn't know, think of it as a countertype. Right. But it's the six that goes against fear with right. strength or right. intimidation. Uh, so it's the the person that kind of goes against the passion. Which could look like an eight, right? Right. This, this, the sexual six, which is the counterphobic six in this case, 
often looks like an eight, and they don't look afraid at all. Right. But their passion is fear. Right. So what is the countertype for five? I forgot. The countertype is the sexual five. Oh, the sexual right? five, right? Because the five looks is less like a five. Yeah, it looks less like a five. Now, and what is the counterphobic two? And the the countertype for two is my is my type self-preservation two. Uh -huh. Which explained a lot to me because in the early days when I was hearing a lot about twos, it always really bothered me that there was so much emphasis mm -hmm. on helping and giving. And it was sort of talked about in terms of altruistic giving and every, twos are always wanting to meet needs mm -hmm. and wa wanting to help people. And I thought, you know, at least half the time I don't want to help someone or mm -hmm. I don't want to meet anybody's need. When I see someone who seems needy, I run the other way. Mm -hmm. And so how do you explain that? And so I think part of it is that Twos haven't been very well explained. It's been a little bit simplistic in the way that they, they are portrayed generally. And I'm the counter type. I'm a, I'm a two that feels a lot of ambivalence about connecting with people. On the one hand, I very much want to connect with people and I want, especially want people to think good things about me and like me. For me, it's more about being likable than being helpful. Um, and being likable is a way to feel a sense of inner well-being. Um, now, I might help or I might do different things to try to be liked, but it, I definitely have some ambivalence. Like, I want to connect with you, but what if I need to make a boundary and I can't? You know, I might, I want to connect with you, but what will that, what will you ask of me? What will you think of mm -hmm. me? What will you, if you get, will you get too close? And mm -hmm. will I not be able to, to move away or say no? Mm -hmm. These are all things that were really alive in mm -hmm. me. And so when I learned that the Enneagram, that the two was a two that was a little more fearful, more mistrustful, more ambivalent about relationship, that made a lot of sense to me and it made a lot of things more clear. And we also talked about, and this A.H. Elmas touches on this uh, in the Faces of God piece, uh, that, uh, that different religions uh, have different faces of God. So Christianity is probably a two religion, right? Right, right. right and right. you said Sufi was... You know, I think I've heard Sufism as a two religion because it's very heart-based. Okay, that's right. Although Islam, not, not so much. Uh, but um, so the five is, is Buddha. And so uh, the mortal fives um, are frequently unenlightened Buddhas or prematurely detached, is what right. is described. Yes. Which fits me to a T. You know, <laughs> prematurely detached right. in many, right. many ways. Right. Um, but what's good about knowing what the face of God is, is that I can say to myself, okay, I'm prematurely detached, mm -hmm. and I can work against that. But I can keep in mind that actually my wound, premature detachment, is the direction of my movement toward my face of the divine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. right, right. It's a reflection exactly. of, of, of a strength, but also something, a way you can get in trouble. So is that true for all the types? I mean, in other words, in my particular type, my wound is my face of the divine at a higher level, would you say that's true for all the types, that the wound, that the movement from vice to virtue, uh, from the wound to the divine, moves through the wound as in Dante's Inferno goes down before it goes up? I think it's very important to confront the wound or the shadow. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of people want to work a, a workaround of some right. kind, and I right. just think it doesn't work. Um, right. 
partly because, you know, it's, it's the difficulties that you have to go through that helps you really grow and really get to where you want to go. And it's, it's sort of a beautiful thing that sort of like contending with pride for me is going to lead me to be more humble, you know, Mm -hmm. that there is a way that if you're really struggling with the passion and aiming for something higher, in a way you have special access to that uh, is kind of like, uh, I think what you're saying. And so I think there is, it's like, there's a very specific path toward the divine for each person Mm -hmm. based on what type they are and what higher capacity they have access to if they can work on the wound or the the Mm -hmm. difficulty or the shadow or, Mm -hmm. uh, or all of that. Mm We have about a half hour to go, and before I do a closing segment, I would like to open it up now for a few um, carefully considered and relatively brief questions. <laughs> so, Harriet, you have a carefully considered and brief question. Really carefully. <laughs> hey, can you talk about, you, you use the arrows um, to in a spiritual growth, basically. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I'm remembering correctly you say that going... Uh, against the arrow is a childhood trauma that you need to deal mm-hmm. with, and going with the arrow is really yeah. your path. Could you talk a little bit yeah, more about that? Yeah, glad you asked about that. No. So there's, for each type, there's an arrow pointing towards it and an arrow pointing uh, away. So for nine, for instance, the arrow against would be three and the arrow with would be six. So the arrow goes towards six and, it, and it's going, uh, it, the arrow is going against three. So I I, I strongly believe that you need to work with these arrows in a particular order. You need to work with the arrow against first before you work with the arrow with. Now, historically, the arrow against, and I'll use mine because it's uh, easy for me to draw on this. So for me as a two, the arrow against is four. So it's really important for me to work on integrating the high side of four and then coming back to two and integrating that before I go to eight. Now, historically, four, uh, the arrow against has been called the security point, and the arrow with has been calling the stress point. Now, one of the things I strongly disagree with, and it's one of my problems with Wisdom of the Enneagram and the Riso Hudson work, is the word disintegration. They use the word disintegration for the arrow toward Um, Now, while that is a stressful point and it does bring up defenses and resistance, um, I think it's a mistake to call it just the disintegration point because that is actually the main direction of spiritual growth. So what we're really aiming for is going with the arrow and even going all around with the arrows. But what happens is it's hard for us to go there because it brings up our defenses. So for me as a two who's indirect, it's hard for me to own my power and authority, eight is a challenge, right? Now, sometimes we slide to our arrow points unconsciously and we usually go to the low side, almost as a release valve for energy. Right, So I might go to four and get really moody. I might go to eight and get really bossy if I'm not being very aware and I'm under stress. I could go to both places under stress. Now, when I'm using them as developmental opportunities, two goes to four because oftentimes, and Sandra Maitri and Almas talk about this, um, oftentimes what the arrow against represents are themes and characteristics that had to be left behind in childhood because they didn't work. Right. So for me as a two, it didn't work for me to be emotional. There was no emotional space for me in my in my childhood because my mom took about all the emotional space. 
Um, and so I kind of had to be more the person who sucked it up and took care of her. Um, so when we work with the Enneagram in this way, we also say the Enneagram is a little bit like a time machine. So it's like going back in time. And Ronnie and I do a workshop. We do a couple workshops where we work exclusively with the arrows. And oftentimes, if we, we, have, we have a mat on the floor, and we'll take someone a two, and we'll bring them back to four. And what will immediately happen is an energetic regression, sometimes back to birth. I've seen many rebirthing processes happen for people at the arrow against. It's amazing, right? And if it's a time machine and that's going back in time to reintegrate what had to be left behind, um, Sandra Maitri calls it the soul child. Um, it's like reintegrating my ability to be more in tune with my needs and not have to be in tune with other people's needs, more in tune with what I'm feeling, more accepting of my emotions, that it's okay. Once I do that, I'm more fortified as a two to make the move to eight, which is challenging, but it's the perfect antidote, right? Because what I really need to learn as a two is to be more direct, to be able to use anger consciously, to be able to engage in constructive conflict, all of which healthy eights are very good at, to be able to confront things more as opposed to avoiding. Um, all of these things are things that it really helps me to learn and going to eight in a conscious way is really gonna help me be in my power more, be more embodied, be in more in touch with my belly, uh, be able to be more direct and less afraid of what's gonna come back at me, less afraid of someone not liking me, for instance. All of these things are really important things and perfect balancing points, right? Same with four. But you have to do four first because if I'm going to eight as a two without having gone to four first, I won't be able to sustain any kind of change because I don't have the internal fortification that is built through integrating the four capacities. And this, there's a story that every type can tell with respect to this. Threes need to go back to six first. They need to get in touch with fear and, and, and get in touch with more of these uh, kinds of um, questioning, questioning what they're doing, um, being getting in touch with all of fear before they can do, uh, and then when they integrate that and go to three, then they can go more to nine and not have to do so much, but get more into being and be more connected to people and not so much just on the path to the goal. That's beautiful. That's a great question. Other questions? Yes, Kate. I have a clarification question. You mentioned the natal point earlier. Mm -hmm. And then, so it sounds like the types are fixed at birth. Is that right? Because in your book, and then later when you were talking about the subtypes, it sounded like you said you developed because your mother was a certain way, so then you developed in childhood. And then one of the things I appreciate about your book is you talk about some of the reasons why the childhood picture of why certain types right. are what they are. So could you clarify that? Sure, what sure. What we come in with and yes. what is learned? Yes, yeah, so the nature-nurture thing is a big, important question. And I actually think it's, it's both. I think we come in not as a blank slate, but who we are. Um, and almost all of us who know our type well and know our childhood well can tell a story about how our type was a good way to adapt in childhood. So I think it's both. Um, now, I actually have a radical spiritual view on this, which I won't say in every context, but which I think I can say here, 
which is that we come in as who we are and we're born into the life that we're meant to live that will give us the lessons that we need that match who we are. Um, so that's a spiritual viewpoint. I can't prove it, obviously. But that's why I think it's both. You know, so I can tell you all about how my childhood kind of shaped me as a two, but I also think childhood experience is a dance, an interaction between how the child responds to things and how they get treated. Um, so I think the environment is important, absolutely. And I also think environment early on has a lot to do with the level of fixation. So in other words, if you had a very traumatic childhood, your personality had to be more, you had to be more defended to survive. So your personality can be more fixated. Um, doesn't mean you can't change and can't grow. It just means your defenses may be more locked in. Um, uh, it, whereas if you had less trauma, there may be more flexibility. It may be more easy to change when you go about trying to change. Other so, questions? Yeah. I see another question. Somebody had a hand up, Diane. Um, you, there's something about the fall in quite a few of your things. You fall from some perfect spiritual consciousness, and if so, if so, how does that fit in with Darwin's evolution that were primates? Mm -hmm. So I think that um, Naranjo, in character of the neurosis, talks about he joins together spirituality and psychology and says the biblical fall, which is a metaphor uh, for a fall, a fall from consciousness, a fall out of union with the divine into a human life, that that is a fall from consciousness, that we go from being conscious of essence to being less conscious. Um, Freud also talks about, and psychologists also talk about how um, we have an unconscious and part of the path of growth is to make the unconscious conscious. Um, so I think that's something that's present in both spirituality and psychology that also is part of the way the Enneagram sees, you know, the Enneagram theory sees things in terms of being less conscious and the, the, the purpose of life is to become more and more conscious. Um, and I, I, in some ways, I think it doesn't really line up with Darwin. I think it's just different. You know, I think there are two different ways of seeing things. I think evolution is real. Um, and I also think that there is, uh, we're spirit beings having a human experience and we're evolving not only from primates into humans, but even beyond that. So does that um, thing you said about nurture, we come in as who we are, we get the life we need to live, imply sort of past lives? or It does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's a worldview that I'm... Yeah, it's, it, it again. Or, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a viewpoint. It's you know, mm -hmm. it's something that you don't have to believe in if you right. use the enneagram. But yeah, I think some of this work and it does imply that you're working this stuff out over lifetimes. You're listening to part two of a two-part TNS conversation with Beatrice Chestnut and host Michael Lerner. Other questions? Can I ask a second one? <laughs> really right. Her first one was pretty good. <laughs> so you talked about uh, subtype, and I'm trying to remember how you said it, but it made me think that I wondered whether the subtype, if you are a, a, a self-pres, will you be a self, I'm trying to think how you said it, but it made me think about the centers. We're mm -hmm. all heart. If you were, would you, I'm not sure I can actually even verbalize the question, but it did make me think that there might have been continuity in the three centers mm. of subtypes if you were a subtype in one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think they're different dimensions, the center dimension and the uh, subtype dimension. Now, it's interesting, if you look at Echazo's work, uh, what he was really talking about, he put them on the centers, but he was talking more about the instincts. So Naranjo, I think, was really the one that kind of said there's an instinctual level there's and there's a center level. Now, I think sometimes the mistake people make is that they don't take these three levels into account. So there's always, whenever we're talking about a personality, there's on one level, there's what center we come from. And that has an impact, right? On another level, there's our type focus. That has an impact. And on another level, there's the dominant instinct or the instinctual sequence that has its impact. And I think all three of those are important. Um, like in, with, with the Riso Hudson work, they talk of the Hornavians, and there's like a specific type within each center uh, that uh, is alike in a certain way. Well, I think that's true, but I think you also have to start at there's so Horn, Horn, Karen Horne's theory was that uh, one of the three basic solutions to early ba childhood basic anxiety was to move away from people, to move toward people, or to move against people. Uh, and so I think it happens at three levels. So in other words, the heart types in some ways are moving toward people, right? Take care of me, love me. The head types in some ways are moving away. Like I'm kind of afraid of you, so I'm gonna move back first as a first thing. And the body types are in some ways moving against. And this lines up perfectly with object relations theories like Melanie Klein's theory about autistic contiguous position. Um, Margaret Mahler's whole de description of differentiation and how the, the, the first uh, stage of life is about differentiating from the mother. Well, she, these object relations theorists talk about that experience of literally skin against skin. That's how the child first learns to know they're separate. So this Eight, nines, and ones who are body-based have issues related to that period of development. Mm -hmm. Mahler's, Mahler's work on practicing, you know, the next big subphase, the next big phase is practicing or testing for danger. And she describes, I mean, she did videotapes, hours and hours and hours of videotapes of children at a uh, childcare center. And this is my object relations paper. And she describes in minute detail, all that they observed as the childs get older, it's like a description of the Enneagram types, going from nine to eight to seven to six. You hear it like the child begins to walk and they feel like they're omnipotent. It's a little bit like the eight and the, they talk about these omnipotent children. It sounds like type eight. Then it feels like the world is their oyster and they're excited and thrilled. It sounds like seven. Then they go a little bit too far away from other and they get freaked out and get scared and the behaviors sound like six. So it goes all the way Could around. Could you take us all the way around? Sure. And so five, seven, six, and five, you see elements of the practicing stage of development mm -hmm. and they have issues around that. And then two, three, and four are the rapprochement stage. And it's amazing, if you read Mahler, after the five where she talks about all of a sudden the toddler realized they were alone, all by themselves, a small child, and you know, are they gonna get what they need? Then, all of a sudden, at a certain point in the development, more, a wider range of feelings starts to occur. Um, they start to feel envy. They start to recognize the subjectivity of the previously only objects in their worlds. So in other words, mom can like my sibling better than me. So now envy comes into the picture. And Melanie Klein, who was a you know, post-Freudian object relations theorist, she wanted, she was a sexual four and she wanted to be Freud's daughter and she wasn't, Anna Freud was. And her whole theory is about envy. 
she brought, she talks all about envy and, and anger and, and how the baby feels anger. And it's so interesting how even the theory, but, but two, three, and four, it's, they get in, more interested in social interaction. They start going to other people, not just the parents. They have a wider range of feelings. They cry more. They feel sad, all these things. And so if you read Margaret Mahler, it's like reading just the story of this uh, developmental trajectory. And if you know this as a psychotherapist, then when someone comes into your office and they're a four or a six or a seven, you know exactly what the wound is, right? And where it came from and what stage of development. And so that's one of the things I was trying to tell the therapists of the world is you have this amazing, you know, character analysis system. And if you marry it with what object relations theorists have learned through research about early childhood development, you have this beautiful trajectory of, of the human development. You know what's beautiful about what you just said, among many other things, you mentioned um, uh, Melanie Klein, Mahler, uh, Anna Freud, and Horney. They're all women. Yeah, isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So have you yeah. consciously been um, <laughs> surfacing the under-appreciation uh, of women theorists to psychology, or was that... Pure happenstance. That was pure happenstance. Uh -huh. um, I think it, I think it's interesting that yeah. they, that women. This was a place where they were mm -hmm. in more positions of theoretical and mm -hmm. and other kinds of power. And I think Karen Horney. Because it was child development there. Child, yeah. And I think maybe yeah. that was you know therapy yeah. Has, yeah. is is you see a lot of female women mm -hmm. in their in therapy roles. Um, but I think Karen Horney is one of my absolute favorite theorists. And she is also Claudio Naranjo's favorite theorist. I was going to say, did Naranjo bring Horney into uh, Enneagram? He, again, I think she was so much a fat part of the fabric of his thinking. Yeah. He was so influenced by her, but for good reason. Yeah. Because her theory is fantastic and her books are readable by a layperson. Mm -hmm. I mean she just she she write her 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 writing is almost beautiful. That's why I use one of I, uh, the frontest piece of the complete enneagram there's a quote from her mm -hmm. and it, it's about an acorn and an oak tree incidentally. Mm -hmm. um, but it's um, her writing is beautiful and mm -hmm. it's really talks about the basic anxiety we feel as children and the solutions we try to mm -hmm. find and how they end up being ego issues and personality mm -hmm. patterns and constellations of defenses. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I, I think, you know, you made the point, I think really well earlier that like it really took someone like Naranjo for this system to come through because he had had such a deep knowledge of, on so many different fronts. But I think Karen Horne, you really see the influence mm -hmm. of her uh, on the way that he describes the different types. I'll mention something that, um, something I absolutely can't prove, but when uh, Jesus is confronted by the elders with the adulterous woman, mm -hmm. and they say she's committed adultery, the law says she should be stoned, uh, what should we do? They're mm -hmm. testing him. Mm -hmm. What does Jesus do? Mm -hmm. I can't remember. He stops, he's, he leans down, and he draws something in the sand. Mm -hmm. And then he says to them, 
let he who, who is, is without sin, sin cast, cast the first, the first stone. stone right. right? Yeah, yeah. So I have the idea yeah. Yeah. that yeah. Jesus drew the enneagram <laughs> of all the vices, and then he said, mm. "Let he who is without sin mm. cast the first stone," and they mm. all went away. Mm. And then he said to the woman, "You know, go and sin." You're free. Yeah. You're free to go. Yeah. 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 So. Wow. Yeah. So. As we move toward completion here, what have I not asked you that you would like to uh, like to say about this work? I mean, really, you've made such a tremendous contribution, and we look forward to staying in touch with you. Mm. But what what have we not talked about that you would like to uh, include? Mm, that's a tough one. Um, I guess the thing that comes to me is um, just sort of the work going forward, you yeah. know, I think is um, really important for me and what I think about a lot in my daily life. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure what to say about that. Um, but I guess one thing is that what I'm really dedicated to is um, really inviting people, hopefully inspiring people, sometimes challenging people to do deeper work. Um, because I think, I mean, I really, you know, I think we all have our way. We want to save the world. Uh, and I think the way I want to save the world is by uh, this kind of work about, about find, getting people to do more self-reflection, um, making it interesting and, and exciting and enjoyable, um, that showing that there, although it's hard, it's also... Uh, very rewarding. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that just a lot of the problems that happen between people are just when we get stuck in our own perspective and we don't realize we're stuck in it, or if we do realize it, we're not sure how to get out of it. Uh, and so I think I'm, you know, one of the things Orani and I talk about is how the first kind of era of the Enneagram coming out, I would say post-Naranjo, I would say sort of maybe more not Naranjo, I don't include him in this because I think he's very challenging of people. I mean, he comes from Gestalt and Fritz Perls, which is very much like challenging, more, more of a challenging kind of therapy um, to be in the moment and to, to be conscious and to confront the ego. Uh, but I also think that there has been a lot happening in the Enneagram world where people were emphasizing being kind and gentle. Uh, and of course, there's a place for that and we need that. But I think it was sort of an overreaction to the human potential movement where some things went too far. Uh, and maybe in turn, maybe to some degree in some of Claudio's work when he puts things in kind of a, a way that people can't relate to or feel their defenses go up. Um, so I'm looking for ways, how can we invite people into this work, but let them know it's gonna be challenging, you know, and that you should expect to have to feel your pain. Uh, and that this is, again, I think part of facing the shadow, um, far, part of the, you have to go down before you can go up. Um, I think this is something, this is a message that I'm really interested in bringing forward and finding more creative uh, and, and effective ways of introducing because um, some people are really up for that right away, but other people, I think, uh, get scared away or need it to be kind and gentle for a while before they can be confronted, which makes sense. Uh, but part of this, I think, is about really um, being more honest with ourselves. Um, in some of the esoteric uh, 
literature I've read, they talk a lot about how uh, we humans lie to ourselves a lot. Gurdjieff called it buffers. We have a lot of buffers, the way we buffer ourselves from reality. Um, and so um, I'm, I'm wanting to almost create a, a movement or a, an organization or a place for people to go where they really want to be more honest with themselves, mm. uh, where they really want to do the deep work, where they really want to be always asking the question, you know, what's next for me? You know, what do I need to work on now? Um, we were talking earlier about sort of developmentally, how do you work on things as you go through? And I think sometimes it's just about picking a, an issue that's causing you pain or problems and putting your attention on that. What do I need to do to really overcome this? I know for me or at various points and to some degree ongoing, or I've, but I've, got, I've made progress, it was like, how can I be more okay with people not liking me or people having bad feelings about me or people being angry with me? For me, that controlled my life because now there's an external locus of control. I'm doing things to avoid. Uh, and still I slip into that. And so it can be really important for us to sort of really focus on what do I need to be doing and what are the best resources I can draw on for that? What is the support I need to do this? Uh, and what are, what are some places and things I can do to really move forward? Because I think people are wanting that more. I think people are having more of a thirst for this. And one of the things I like about a lot of the psychology that I use most is that they say there's not only these instincts for um, uh, for survival, but there's also an instinct to want to be fulfilled. There's also an instinct to want to be um, to be happy, to be all of who you are. And I think how do we allow ourselves to tap into that? One of the things I like about working with um, my partner, my uh, my my teaching partner Aranio, is he has a real gift for at once confronting people's egos, but creating a lot of space for them to go to, for their highest potential to come right out. Mm -hmm. So for instance, they'll talk about how um, nines, um, nines, first of all, nines are, you know, it's that idea of being lazy. They'll say, well, no, nines aren't lazy. They're doing all the actions except the right action, right? <laughs> and right action is the higher virtue. Uh, but they're doing a lot of stuff. It's just not what the exact thing they need to do for themselves. And it's so uh, he'll also say things like nines aren't better than anyone else, but they're bigger. Mm. They have more energy. Mm. And the thing about nines is they have a lot of energy, but it gets diffused. Mm. And the work of the nine is to focus the energy on mm. the right action, right? And so how do you help people understand what their potential is? What, what Give them something to go for, you know? Mm. He'll say, you know, threes sometimes get described as not being very emotional because threes are very good at kind of numbing out or turning down the volume on their emotions so they can get a lot done because that's sort of the big focus of the personality is looking good and getting things done. Um, but he'll say in our workshops, actually, threes are the most emotional of all the types. Mm -hmm. And just that idea, like all of a sudden, you see the threes just open up. <laughs> and on the one hand, and not have to carry around this idea about I'm not good at this or I have this defect, you know. It's not really about the defect. It's the ways we habitually limit ourselves from our higher potential. Mm -hmm. So how can we, I think the Enneagram is such a beautiful tool about helping us spell out what is the work? 
what is the challenge I need to, need to re- meet right now? And after I've really worked on this one and I've actually made some progress and I'm feeling better and I'm seeing a shift in my life, what's the next thing? You know, and what do I need to be able to do that? What resources, again, what community will support me? Uh, how can I be continually reflecting on what do I need to be doing that's going to make me happier and more fulfilled uh, and help and make me more able to help the people around me? Because, by the way, that three-step thing of initiation, um, uh, departure, initiation, and return, which is the, the three steps of the monomyth that Joseph Campbell talks about, and I think you can map that onto the Enneagram as the hero's journey, um, return is a remembrance of your higher self, of who you really are, and it's a bringing something back to your community, Mm -hmm. right? So there's very much a, once we get more in touch with the higher side, it becomes, it's not just about me, it's about everyone. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the, uh, the, the wisdom behind the Enneagram really teaches that this evolution thing is not an individual thing, it's a collective project. Uh, and, but if we each are doing our work, if we're each committing ourselves to self-awareness, then the whole collective benefits. Mm-hmm. Before I thank Beatrice, there are two things I'd like to say. The first is that I encourage you to buy her books. They're outside. She has more in the trunk of her car if she runs out. <laughs> so let's let her go home with an empty car trunk. Uh, also, uh, I think her workshops sound extraordinary, and I encourage you to sign up for them. I encourage you to spread the word about her work. And also... Um, Beatrice, like all our presenters, has done this as a gift to our community, and um, I want to encourage you to recognize that getting four hours like this is a rare thing, and so if you want the new school to keep doing this, we would deeply appreciate your contributions to the new school. We'll happily uh, accept your support. You can also go online, and it's awfully nice if you put $10 a month on a credit card uh, in support of the new school. Mm -hmm. That's a way of remembering your part in this community year-round. So um, those two things, support Beatrice's work, support the new school. So with that, Beatrice um, Chestnut, author of The Complete Enneagram, 27 Paths to Greater Self-Knowledge, a book on leadership, also the Enneagram Systems, 27 personality subtypes. I can't thank you enough for being with us at the New School today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to part two of a two-part conversation with Beatrice Chestnut and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.